Uh, well, good morning. Welcome to Rooftop. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Rooftop. We're actually starting a new sermon series this morning. The series is called The One Another's. And as we were brainstorming uh, this series, it started taking on a, a 60s, 70s rock vibe. So that might not be the last 60s, 70s hit you hear before the end of the series. In fact, in fact, Jason is officially taking requests. So on that blue info card, you can use that for prayer requests or song requests. Just put those in the blue box uh, in the back. But, but let me tell you about the series and uh, why we're doing it. And in order to tell you about it, uh, let me just start this morning with a question. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? When most of us hear this question, we might think that to be a Christian means to uh, be saved from sin and death by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we think it means when... It, when we think of this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, be saved from sin and death by the, the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. And to be sure, it means that. It means that. Uh, but that's only one aspect of Christianity. That's the, the vertical, that's the more individualized aspect of faith. And, it, and honestly, it's the part of Christianity that we think of here in the modern American Western world. We think about this, this vertical aspect me and God getting saved by Jesus. But there's also a horizontal aspect to the Christian faith that is just important as the vertical. What's the horizontal aspect? To be a Christian horizontally means to live in a renewed set of relationships with God's people. To be a Christian means to be called into a family of believers without whom you cannot live and on whom you depend in fact, it is mostly in our horizontal relationship with God's people that our vertical Christian faith finds its fullest expression. Uh, on every page of the, on nearly every page of the New Testament, we find this. The authors of the New Testament repeatedly describe how our vertical faith in Jesus should be impacting our horizontal relationships, not just with, with, with everybody in the world, but especially with the people of God. The work of Jesus on the cross calls us into a new community comprised by the other people that Jesus has also saved. Uh, maybe you know this, uh, but the letters in the New Testament, for example, the letters in the New Testament, they weren't actually written to Christians. Letters in the New Testament weren't actually written to Christians. They're written to churches. They're written to churches, gatherings of Christians called together by Christ. And so much of the instruction in these letters describes what it's like to live in a horizontal community, a church called together and formed vertically by Jesus. Now, the authors of the Bible have a lot to say about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, um, Paul. They have a lot to say about what it means to be a Christian horizontally, but, but their, their instruction can basically be summarized in three words. Their instruction on how to live as Christians horizontally can be summarized in a simple command. The command is, blank one another. That phrase, blank one another, occurs dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the Bible. And the blank gets filled in with all kinds of verbal instructions, uh, verbal commands, serve one another, pray for one another, honor one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, be devoted to one another. Now, it's a really simple phrase, blank one another. But it's a really meaningful one. And if you think about it, there are a few very, very important ideas embedded in just these three words. First, the phrase suggests 
that we have a very diverse set of needs. We don't just need to encourage one another. We don't just need to teach one another. We also need to pray for one another and help one another. In order to be a healthy church community, we need all these things. I don't just need your encouragement, although I do. I occasionally need to be rebuked by you. But also, we all need these things. We need all these things. No one in a church doesn't need what the Bible says we need. One more time. No one in a church doesn't say, doesn't need what the Bible says we need. We all need admonishment. We all need forgiveness. The Bible doesn't say admonish one another, except for Bill. Bill doesn't need that so much. Admonish one another, admonish everybody. Thirdly, though, we need these from each other. What the one another commands emphasize is the reciprocal mutuality of an entire group of people following Jesus together. I don't just encourage you. You don't just encourage me. We don't just encourage him. We encourage one another. Uh, I, I don't just submit to you. You don't just submit to me. We don't just submit to her. We submit to each other. And this brings me to the reason that I decided on this series. Just so you know, when we're like picking series here at Rooftop, we don't do so randomly. We try to do so intentionally. We don't just like reach our hand into a bowl of like sermon series possibilities. Mm, what's next? Mm -hmm. Ah, Leviticus. That's what's next. No, that's not how we do it. We studied the Sermon on the Mount last year because I thought it was really important for us as a church to recommit ourselves to the radical commands of Jesus. And just so, this one another stuff is what I think we need to talk about as a congregation right now. Here's why. You see, Rooftop has existed for nearly 23 years. In our early days as a church plant, way up in the Richmond Heights Community Center, we were smaller. Now, we wanted to grow, of course. But ironically, one of the things that people said they loved about Rooftop in the early days was that we were a real intimate, interconnected community, a church family that knew how to care for each other. Now, we're bigger now. That makes us harder. Not only are we bigger, but many of us don't know each other as well. And when we said goodbye to a church plant that's out in Fenton, it's doing great. But it was really hard to say goodbye to friends and family. I mean, my son goes there. <laughs> it's hard to say goodbye to friends and family. Also, we lost a bunch of people during COVID and the fallout. It was inevitable. It happens. But we've also welcomed a bunch of new people since. Basically, rooftop has been reconstituted. Now, this is normal. This is natural. It happens, but it means we got some work to do. You see, there are still important things that we want to do over the next 23 years. We want to plant more churches. We want to send out more missionaries. We want to get better at this. That's the vision, but we need to recommit ourselves to that sense of community and family that helped make Rooftop super special in the early days. Now, we haven't lost it. We just need to recommit ourselves to it because we really don't just want to become another growing church. I mean, there are plenty of those. We want to be a growing church that experiences the power of God's people coming together to do the work of God. There's power when the people of God come together to do the work of God. There's a fire, there's an energy, there's a reaction, there's a supernatural spiritual potential that is realized. There's an explosive energy that is released when the people of God come together to do the work of God. Frankly, it's the only way to do church with any sort of scale. And this is another reason that we're doing this series. What I mean 
is that in a lot of churches, the model for ministry they use is, is this. This is kind of how they do church. It's pastors and leaders. It's little yellow dots caring for little green dots. Frankly, many of us grew up in these kinds of churches. Uh, we paid pastors and leaders to kind of lead and pastor us, to do church for us. And yeah, that's part of the job. That's part of my job to teach, lead, and pastor you however imperfectly I do that. And you know I do that quite imperfectly. But at a certain point, this becomes unsustainable. Look around you. We are way past that point. We are way past the point where our small handful of pastors can care for all the hundreds and hundreds of people who call Rooftop their church home. Now, we're actually trying to hire a couple more pastors here at Rooftop to help lead and serve, and that will help to be sure. But on the other hand, you know what? Maybe we don't need more pastors. Maybe what we actually just really need is the people God has assembled here in this room. Maybe we just need one another. Maybe we need to learn what it means to exist as a spirit-filled, interconnected, mutually dependent church community with everyone pulling their weight on behalf of everyone else. I mean, this is so much healthier than this. I know it's messier, but it's so much healthier. As a shameless plug, by the way, this is why healthy, well-led small groups are just so important because it puts people in a place where they can really experience the fiery one-anotherness of God's people coming together to do the work of God. So that's what we're going to talk about during our series. We're, we're going to talk about the one-another verses listed in Scripture, what it means to serve one another, what it means to greet one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, forgive one another, accept one another. There are actually 59, 59 distinct one another commands in Scripture, 59 separate discrete ways to treat one another. We could spend more than a year studying them. We are not going to do all of them because by the end of this series, if we did, we would be sick of one another. <laughs> Out of those 59 commands, I picked 12. Christians like the number 12. 12 seems safe. And we're going to start this morning with perhaps the most common and overarching of the one another commands, as the band just sang, band just sang come on people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, learn to love one another right now. Yeah, I remember likes that song, yeah. Some of you, like, a lot, do you even remember that song? Okay, a few of you. Like, you actually heard it on the radio, you know, when you're turning the dial. You know? So the command to love one another, it's scattered aplenty throughout the New Testament. This certainly includes the teachings of Jesus. As he tells his disciples in John 13, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Paul issues the same command to the Romans, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Peter also tells his readers the same, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, love one another deeply from the heart. And the apostle of love, John the Beloved, repeats the command many, many times in his own letters, including 1 John 3. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that's the vertical, and to love one another as he commanded us. That's the horizontal. 
So aside from believing in Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sins, there might be no more important thing in our life than to love the people of God. It's Jesus' last and greatest command. It is the most popular of the one another verses by far. But what does it mean? What does it really mean to love one another? Let's talk about it for a few minutes this morning. I actually have five questions that I want to pose to you this morning as we talk about love. Some of them are basic, but all of them are important. Like the first one, what is love? What is love? Is it what Hathaway says in the 1993 dance pop hit, when babies don't hurt us? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Do, 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 do. Is that what love is when babies don't hurt us? <laughs> well, no. Uh, the dictionary says that love is affectionate concern for the well-being of others. Love is affection. Affectionate concern for the well-being of others. Love is a feeling that makes us want to be with other people and work for their well-being. Love is a passion for others that we have that makes us want to protect them and serve them and save them. We'll talk about what it means to serve others in love and how love must lead to action, but love must start in the heart. Or if you're more of a brain person, it must start in the amygdala. It's the emotion center of the brain. But that doesn't rhyme as much as start from the heart. As Peter has already said, love one another deeply from the heart. And as it says later, all of you, be sympathetic. Love one another. Love sympathizes with other people. Love is an emotion that makes us feel for them. Now, this is easier for some of us than it is for others. Some of us are feelers. Some of us are not. I know there is great diversity uh, in the body of Christ. We have different levels of emotion. I get it. I think I've just realized, though, that the more you grow in Jesus Christ, the deeper your feelings for God and others get. It's hard to be a Christian and not become a feeler. Age helps with this. Suffering helps with this. You old people like me know what I'm talking about. The older you get, the more you feel it. Joy, empathy, love. My wife and I were out to dinner several months ago at a family-run restaurant in South City. For example, after we sat down and after the waitress had brought us our, our menus, another woman actually brought us water and bread. And this, this woman was older. And after interacting with her for just a little bit, I could tell that she had had a stroke. Um, her, she wasn't communicating very, very well, and she was, her hands were moving in, in the right way. Uh, but there she was. There she was. Serving us bread and water, making a paycheck, doing her darndest. And at the sight of this, this hardworking disabled woman, my heart broke. I actually started weeping at the table. I started crying and I could not stop. Uh, my wife, Michelle, started laughing at me. She's like, what, what, is, what is happening to my cold-hearted husband that I married so long ago? What is happening to this, this man? Love happens to you. 
That's what happens. It was love for someone that, that I actually genuinely admired. I mean, I, I admired this woman doing her job, and I just wanted to, I wanted to help her with the bread. I wanted to commend her for persevering through whatever she had gone through, which I can't even imagine. I mean, I can't even imagine having a stroke. And then going to work, bringing people bread. She was doing it. That's love. Love is a feeling. Be sympathetic, Peter writes. Feel the love. Love one another deeply from the heart. If you want to love, if you want to love the people that God calls us to love, you've got to feel it. Second, why should we love? In a certain sense, this is a silly question. We should love because we do. Love is a natural human thing. We just do. We were made to love. People love. People who don't love, they actually might not quite yet be people. Although there are reasons, uh, we should love because Jesus tells us to. A new command I give you, love one another. As a rule, if Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. Also, we should love one another because to love one another, to love another person is to love Jesus. Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me, Jesus says. Anytime you feel for a stroke victim, you feel for Jesus. Because Jesus identifies himself that closely with that person. But also, we should love one another because this is, this is how we're going to convert the world. As Jesus puts it to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love for each other is our greatest evangelistic strategy. Love for one another is how we're going to send out missionaries. Love for one another is how we're going to plant other churches. Love for one another is how we're going to grow rooftop. By loving each other sincerely from the heart, we show the world that we are Christians who follow Jesus. Unfortunately, I don't have to tell you that many Christians have a different reputation in the world today. At least in this country, Christians are known more for their hate than their love. Some of this criticism might be unfair. I mean, I'm not in that crowd holding one of those signs. But some of it is not unfair. A couple years ago, for example, my wife, Michelle, and I, uh, we went to a pastor's conference out in Colorado Springs. Colorado. Now, if you don't know, Colorado Springs is like Christiantown, USA. There are a whole bunch of Christian organizations, political and religious, that are based out there. And I was talking to uh, the leader of the, the conference, a pastor, and he told me a story. He, he told me that he had been hiking in the mountains, and he had hooked up with another couple of hikers, and they started chatting, and he actually asked them where they were from, and they said that, well, they were actually residents of Colorado Springs. And uh, then this pastor, he asked them if they liked living in Colorado Springs. And they looked at each other, and they said, in unison, we used to. He asked what they meant, and they said, well, we used to, before all the Christians moved in. That's what they said together in unison. Before all the Christians moved in. They went on to explain that Christians had taken over their city with their political activism, and in some cases, political hate, and they didn't like living in the city anymore. The guy I was talking to said, I wasn't actually sure if I should tell them I'm a Christian pastor or not. 
how did we get this reputation? How is a people commanded by the God of the universe to love each other? Did we get a reputation as a hateful people? Now, like I said, some of this is very undeserved, but some of it is not. There are a lot of Christians who hate gays and Muslims and trans people and black people and white people and poor people and woke people and rich people and Christian people. There are a lot of Christian people who hate a lot of Christian people. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying we don't have things to fight for in this country. But we clearly have not figured out how to do so lovingly. And imagine what might happen if we do. Imagine what might happen here in St. Louis if we can find a way to show this city what love really looks like. Imagine what it might look like for us to learn how to fight for our causes and to stand for our principles with grace and love. But speaking of what does love really look like? That's why we should love. But what does it look like? Well, that brings us to question number three. How should we love? How should our love appear? In her sonnet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning famously asked the question, how should I love thee? And then she went on to count the ways. You're remembering her high school poetry class. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. There are lots of ways to love. I am not a poet. In whatever ways there are to love, I cannot put an iambic pentameter. But we can count them. First, we should love his family. As the book of Hebrews says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The church is our family. The people we are sitting with right now, that strange person that you sat down to, sat down next to accidentally, guess what? Let me introduce you to your new sibling. I thought about this a couple Sundays ago. I don't want to be judgmental, but here I go. Uh, fair warning. Uh, lots of churches canceled Christmas or canceled uh, church on Christmas morning, and they do so for lots of reasons. I've heard all the reasons. You know, we want to give volunteers a break. And it's hard for staff. Uh, but the most common reason I hear for churches canceling church on Christmas is they they want families to be together. They want families to be together. What about the family? Honestly, it kind of breaks my heart. As Peter says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. So, love his family. Two, count the ways. Love actively, as John writes. Dear children, let us love, not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We can't just say we love. We can't just sing the songs. Got to show it. We're going to talk about more over the course of the series. Most importantly, though, for counting the ways, we've got to love across barriers that would keep us from loving other people. We've got to love in the hard ways. 
In the Sermon on the Mount we just studied, Jesus makes the point that it's, it's actually relatively easy to love people who are like us. I mean, I, I have a pretty easy time, uh, you know, when uh, tall, goofy, uh, 40-year-old white Christian dudes walk into rooftop. I'm like, hey, my brother! <laughs> it's like the easiest challenge in the world to love that person. Um, it, it's hard to love people who are not that, but it's all the more reason that we do because that's when love really means something. As Jesus says, love your enemies. You don't get any points for loving your friends. Now, yeah, Jesus is talking about like persecuting Romans, but he's also just talking about people who are different than us. I mean, you know as well as I do that a lot of times people who are different than us, we, we make them feel like the enemy to us. People whose politics or theology or behavior or background or smell or appearance are different. We, we put up barriers between us and them that make it hard to love them as our enemies. And, and sometimes these, these people are in our same church, they're in our same family, and, and sometimes they have hurt us. That actually happens. I skimmed a book this week. Uh, I wanted to read it, just ran out of time, so I, I pastor skimmed it. Uh, but I'd highly recommend it. It's called Bold Love by Dan Allender. Allender is a Christian counselor that I've, I've grown to really appreciate. He has worked with lots of people who have been hurt by abusers, leaders, spouses, parents, pastors, priests. Uh, like Jesus, Dan acknowledges that oftentimes love is easy, but, but love is sometimes hard, like really, really, really hard. Sometimes you're told to love someone you would just rather hate, and Jesus understands that. Jesus understands how difficult it is to love someone that you would rather hate. I mean, Jesus was abused by people inside his church. He gets it. But Jesus also was the one who told us that just because it's hard to love someone doesn't mean we get not to do it. Again, sometimes it matters that love is a command. You just, you got to love. This does raise a fair question, though. How? How do we do that? How do we love a parent who abandoned us? How do we love a pastor who hurt us? How do we love a friend in our church who betrayed us? Well, that brings me to question number four. How can we love? Not how should we love. How can we love? How is this possible? How is it possible that we can love people we'd rather hate? Maybe this is your question. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, this sounds great. It's awesome. But that person really hurt me. How am I supposed to love that person? Well, I would share several things with you about that, things that Dan talks about in his book. Uh, first, confess your struggles. We're going to talk about more talk about this more over the course of the series because this is one of our one another verses. But confess your sins to one another, one another so you may be healed. Usually when we think of sin, confess your sins, we think of bad things we do, right? Just things that we did to hurt somebody else. But our Catholic friends, those are sins of commission. And our Catholic friends would actually remind us that there's a different type of sin, the sins of omission, right? Really important things that you know you need to do that you just don't. So you didn't do anything wrong, you just didn't do the right thing that God called you to do. Those are sins too. I mean, if Jesus' command to love one another is like the most important thing he gives us to do, then our refusal to do that is like the greatest sin we could have committed. Confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. Admit that. Call the pastor. Tell him, I'm a ter I struggle with love. Ask for help. That's what confession is. It's asking for help. Also, we can get better at loving. 
Love can be learned. Love must be learned, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and all the love, all of, for all of you, the love you have for one another is increasing. Love can be learned as it increases in our lives. God wants to increase love in your life so that you can love to know how to love one another better. That might be one of his most important programs for you, to increase love in your life so that you can love other people better. I hate to be so cliche, but one of the ways that we can learn to love better is to learn to speak other people's love languages. Uh, you know this idea of love languages. People tend to love each other in very specific ways. Gifts, physical touch, words, service. If we want to learn how to love, we need to speak other people's love languages. I, for example, am trying to become a better hugger. Physical touch. Not one of my love languages, my family of origin love languages. We shook hands at Christmas. But there are many people in my life for whom hugging is a way of saying, I love you. In fact, I'm trying, I'm trying to speak your language. I'm trying to connect with the people. You can help me here by forcing upon me short, <laughs> short, you know, like 2.3 second hugs, light patting on the back, hips apart, <laughs> cheeks not touching. We'll, we'll, we'll move into all those things. You know, we'll be warmly embracing each other in a few years. We're right, let's just move slowly. <laughs> we need to learn to speak one another's languages. This is how we can love, by confessing our struggles, learning to love better. But, but here, here is how we can really learn to one another better, love one another better. Here's how we can really learn to love one another better. We can love another better by being loved, by just being loved. You see, our ability to love one another, including hard-to-love people, flows out of our experience of God's love for us. We cannot share with others what we have not received. This is why God pours his love into us through the Holy Spirit, so that we can pour it into other people. As Paul writes to the Romans, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And as John writes to his readers, we love because he first loved us. And this brings us back to the vertical dimension of our faith. To be a Christian is to be saved from sin and death by the work of Jesus Christ. But it also means to be filled with the Spirit of God so that we can love the people of God. In order to do that, though, we got to be loved. We have to let God love us. A lot of us, frankly, just don't want to let God love us. We want to prove to ourselves that we deserve God's love instead of just like receiving the love God has for sinners. We want to tell ourselves that we are terrible sinners who do not deserve to be loved by God. No, God, don't love me, don't love me, don't love me. And just instead of admitting to the fact that he does. We want to keep ourselves so busy and distracted that we don't want to feel God's love because we're not feelers and emotions are scary. But if you really want to love other people, especially the hard-to-love people that you are called to love and commanded by God to love, you got to let yourself feel the love. you got to let yourself be loved by the God of the universe who loved you so much that he did this. He came to earth as a man to die for your sins. You heard it before? Still true. 
That's how much he does. Came to earth as a man to die for your sins. And your ability to really love hard to people in your life and even in this church depends on your ability to understand that, how much God loves you, that he would come to earth to die for your sins. To die for your sins. Not to just preach a sermon, not to just make you a meal. To die for your sins. Maybe that's not something you've really internalized yet. Oh, really? That's true for me. Wow. Maybe it's something you're coming to. It needs to be, though. It needs to be the most important fact of your life. That God loves you enough that he came to earth to die for your sins. This needs to be so real and so true in your own heart and mind that you just can't help but pour it out into this. I do have one final question, though, that I want to leave you with. Talked about what love is, why we should love, how we should love, how we can love. We like to be practical here at Rooftop, though. So here's question five. Who do you need to love? And how do you need to love them? So five and six. Who do you need to love? How do you need to love them? Whose face came to your mind? That's your person. I know the Bible says love one another, but let's not get lost in the generic. Let's get specific. What specific person is God calling you to love today? To be a Christian means to love that person, not just in words, but in action and in truth. And if you can't love that person, are you really a Christian? 